Now, thank God that God knows we can only handle so much. So the beauty of it is, now we come back to how great Christ is. You've got the slap. Some of you needed it. Some of you, it made you feel really uncomfortable because of loved ones you know. And to that, we take it all to God. But now that we've got it, now the author comes back to how great Christ is. And that's what it all comes down to, no matter where you are. If you're on fire right now, if you're, maybe the warning is for you, if you're not really quite sure, if your loved one might be there and it really breaks your heart, it all comes back to how great Christ is. It all comes back to how great Christ is. And the God who died to redeem them is at work in their life. And that's what we come back to. Chapter 6, verse 13. Now when God made His promise to Abraham, since He could swear by no greater, He swore by Himself, saying, Surely I will bless you greatly and multiply your descendants abundantly. And so by preserving, persevering, notice the persevering again, Abraham inherited the promise for God, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And the oath serves as a confirmation to the end, all dispute. In the same way, God wanted to demonstrate more clearly to the heirs of the promise that His promise was unchangeable. And so He intervened with an oath so that he, we who have found refuge in Him may find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us through two unchangeable things. Since it is impossible for God to lie, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast, which reaches inside behind the curtain where Jesus our forerunner entered on our behalf since He became a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So now that he's giving the warning passage, now that he says, I'm convinced of better things to you, he now ends this warning passage with two major ideas. One, here's an example of one who did persevere by faith, not works. And two, God honor his promise to Abraham. Therefore, you can trust him. When God says he's convinced of better things for you, he will honor his promise to you. And that's ultimately all we have is the promises of God. Now, in the ancient world, when people, and even today, when people are like, I swear to God, I'm telling the truth. Okay? Now, first of all, we need to understand something. Oaths are not a sin. Somewhere in Saint school class, some of us, I know I was, was taught that if you swear, God is not happy with you because God says, do not swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Here's the problem with that. A yes and a no is an oath. <laughs> If you say yes, you're swearing and you're oathing. Okay? When I said I do to my wife, that's an oath. That's swearing. So the problem is that's a contradicting statement. What God said is this. Do not be such an untrustworthy person that you have to invoke something else all the time to make people trust you. When you make an oath... Make sure that your yes is a yes and your no is a no. Period. And if you constantly have to invoke your mother's grave or God or something like that, then it doesn't matter whether you're taking an oath. You're not trustworthy. And that's what it really means. Now, at the same time, there are times when people don't know us. In the ancient world, this, this doesn't work in America anymore because we don't fear God enough. But in the ancient world, when they believed that the gods, you had to realize that the idea of free will didn't exist until pretty much 
couple hundred years before Christ, everybody in the ancient world were fate-oriented. They believed that the gods controlled everything. And so when they said, I swear I'll do this, so help me God, or as a lot of people in the Bible say, it may God deal with me ever so severely if I break this promise. Well, what's the worst thing that God could do to you? Send you to hell. So that's a pretty big deal. Then what you're saying is, you don't know me and I don't know you, but we're going to go into a covenant with each other. And in this covenant, we have a lot at stake. And so I'm invoking my God. And if I break my covenant, you may not be able to find me and track me down, or you may not know that I broke the covenant every time, but our gods do. And because our gods control everything, we know our gods are going to punish us. And so when you went into a covenant, you said you would cut animals up, both parties, and you would lay one half of the animal on one side of the path and the other half of the animal on the other side of the path. And and I don't know if you've ever killed an animal before. There's a lot of blood in those bodies. And if you kill multiple animals, your path becomes very bloody. And you walk between the animals, one carrying a torch and the other one carrying a smoking torch. And you walk between the animals and you say, I swear, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And if I break this oath, then I swear to the gods may be done to me what was done to these animals. And you have a covenant. And if you break your covenant, they would cut you in half. And if you somehow got away from them, then the gods would destroy your life. And if for some reason you might have skipped that because the gods sometimes like to take their time, and somebody else might come along and cut you in half because they made a covenant with that king and they're not happy that you violated the covenant with the person they made a covenant with. So you were dead either way. And so this is what a covenant was. Today, you just sign your name to a piece of paper and then you find a really good lawyer to find a loophole and you get out of it. Okay? Back then, it was death. And so you swore by the gods that you were going to honor this. And the gods held you accountable. And because everybody believed in the gods and everybody knew the gods controlled everything, we knew that you still might break the treaty, but somebody was going to deal with you. And way worse than I could ever imagine what I could do to you. So God comes along to Abraham. And Abraham says, God, I need something more. I mean, it's been 20 years, and I know you promised me a son. And I believe But at the same time, it's been 20 years. I mean, I was already 75 without a son when you first made the promise to me, and now I'm almost 100. I need something tangible. And the great thing about God is He didn't say, Oh my gosh, Abraham, isn't blind faith enough for you? He created us to be tangible creatures. And so He gave Abraham a tangible promise. And He said, Okay, Abraham, chapter 15 of Genesis. Get some animals. Cut them up. Lay him on the path. I'm going to make a covenant. And a flaming torch representing God and a smoking torch representing Abraham floated between the animals and thus began the Abrahamic covenant. And the reason they floated, well, because Abraham as a sinner can't come in the presence of God without the blood of Jesus Christ. Or without angels. But God wasn't making a covenant with angels, so they weren't allowed to be there. And so Abraham didn't go, and God didn't go, but the two things representing them went, and they made a covenant together. But the cool thing about that is before they even make the covenant, it says that Abraham says, I need something more, God. Give me something tangible. And God says, I promise you, I will make all your descendants as numerous as the stars. I will give you a child from your body, and I will make you in a great nation 
Now go get the animals. And it says, And Abraham believed, and God declared him righteous. Before the covenant was even made tangible. And Romans and Galatians all come back to this saying, it's by faith. Because Abraham had just sinned a couple of times right before that. Because what he did right before that was pretty much got Ishmael through his own works and effort. Okay? And so God says, you believe. That's all that's required. And I'm going to declare you righteous. And Abraham persevered. He persevered for over 25 years. And never got the promise until the very end. And so, this is what it says. Now God, when He made His promise to Abraham, since He could not swear by anything greater, He swore by Himself. The reason you swear by the gods is because you want a higher authority than yourself that can actually watch over everybody's life and deal with something. But there's nothing higher than God. So who is God going to swear by? So He swears by Himself. Now, I remember when I went into court and... Or even when I had to, when I did a transfer of title for my car and they said, okay, hold your hand up. Do you swear that all the information in this title is accurate? I'm like, yeah. Like, this is good enough for you? I'm swearing by myself? Do you not know human nature? Like, seriously. It's because we can't swear by the Bible anymore because we took God out. Now, even if we never took God out, it still doesn't matter whether you swear by the Bible in the court system or not because people don't believe in God. So it doesn't bear any authority. So I know it's wrong to take the Bible out of the court systems, but at the same time, even if it was still there, it wouldn't make a difference. The key is not getting the Bible back in the court system. The key is changing the hearts and the lives of people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what's ridiculous is I'm standing here swearing by my sinful nature that everything on this document is accurate. (laughs) But God, who cannot lie and does not change, swore by Himself, that he would honor the promises of Abraham. And Abraham believed. He doesn't need to invoke a higher power. He is the power. And this is the point that the author of Hebrews is going to make. Two unchangeable things. That God made a a promise, and he doesn't change. See, Allah comes along, and you read some passages in the Quran, and it says, do not get in arguments with Christians and Jews. Do not attack them. Do not get any kind of disputes. Live along among them peacefully. Then you go to other parts of the Quran and it says, whenever you find somebody who's not a believer, hide, lay out in forts, ambush them, even on their sacred holidays, attack them and kill them, behead them, destroy them completely until there are no more people who do not believe. You're like, wait a minute. How can both be true? Because Surah chapter 2 so sorry, in the Quran, Surah 2, which is chapter 2, says, Allah is all competent over all things. And Allah will sometimes bring forth something that is, if Allah brings, says something that is different than what he said before, then it is better than what he said before. And he has changed it because he's competent over all things. Allah literally says in the second chapter of the Quran that he can change his mind and completely change theology drastically because he brings forth something better and truer. He's competent over all things. He's so competent that he might change things on you again. And God says, I'm not a human who is led by my emotions. Numbers 
And I do not change my mind like a human. And I swear to you, by the fact that I honor my promises, I cannot lie, and I do not change, that I will do this for you, Abraham. And what's so cool is in chapter 6, we get the promise. And in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says, by faith, Abraham received the promises of God. And if by faith we waited thousands of years for Christ to come the first time, and he did, then we can know that if we have to wait several thousand more years, he will come the second time. Because he does not change, and he cannot lie. And that's the point he's making here. Look at Abraham, who had to persevere for a long time trusting in God. But look at God, who honored his promises. That's your assurance. That's your hope. That's your trust. That's your confidence. For people swear by something greater than themselves. The oath serves as a confirmation to end all disputes. In the same way, God wanted to demonstrate more clearly to the heirs of the promise that His promise was unchangeable. And so He intervened with an oath so that we have who have found refuge in Him may find strong encouragement to hold fast. Okay? Because we know the same God that Abraham knew, we can have strong encouragement. See, here's the beauty. Abraham had no word of God. He had no death and resurrection. He had no Holy Spirit in an internal sense. We have 66 books of faith. We have a cloud of witnesses that have lived in perseverance and God has honored His promises to them over thousands of years. We have the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have strong encouragement to hold on to the promises that Abraham didn't have the same amount of encouragement. So the question is, what's our excuse? And I think that's what he's mentioning here, is if Abraham believed based on a promise then how much more can we believe based on the promise of God and 66 books where God shows that He always honors His promises? And we have the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. We have strong encouragement to hold on to the promises so that we who have found refuge in Him may find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Notice that hope is always based on promises, not wishful thinking. Set before us. Your hope is in something set on the table physically in front of you, a promise, through two unchangeable things, since it's possible for God to lie, and He does not change, and He does not break His promises. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast, which reaches inside behind the curtain. Now, I love this picture. Christ is our anchor. But there's two ways to use an anchor. You can use an anchor to drop it into the ocean so you do not move. But you can also use a maker in kedging. Kedging is when there's not enough wind in your sails or not enough arm power in your rowing ability that you want to move forward still. And what you do is you take this anchor and you throw it out as far ahead of you as you physically possibly can. It goes in the water, it hits the bottom, and then you pull the chain. And you pull yourself to the anchor. And you do that over and over again. Now Hebrews 4 told us that Christ has gone through the sky or through the veil into the heavenly place and now sits in the right hand of God because He is our forerunner, our trailblazer. And now we can boldly and confidently go to the throne of God knowing that we receive mercy and grace and compassion. 
Now Hebrews comes on and picks that up a little bit more and says that Christ is our hedging anchor. The difference is we don't pull ourselves towards Christ, He pulls us towards Him. Because it's really the weight of the anchor that's pulling you, not your arm strength. Because if that anchor has no weight, you can pull and the anchor just comes towards you. And so Christ not only has gone through the veil that we're not allowed to go through because of our sins, and sat in the heavenly place that we're not allowed because of our sins, and sits at the right hand of God that we're not allowed because we're not the Son of God. But now He becomes our anchor and He pulls us into heaven through His works, His weight. And we just sit there through our faith and hope and go into the Holy of Holies and become heirs to Christ. That's the picture that's painting here. Now, that's not an image of apathy. That's an image of trust and faith. And as Ephesians says, resting in Christ. Okay? And so the reality is, Ephesians makes the point, I learned this way back in junior Bible with Mr. Eiton, that Ephesians makes the point of sit, walk, stand. That we can't really walk and stand in Christ until we first rested and sat in Christ. Because if we try to walk and stand on our own without Christ, then we just go into works and fail. Okay, And so here's the reality. Christ is our anchor. And He's pulling us into heaven. And I am convinced that He will finish the work He began in you. Now will you place your hope in the promises of a God who does not change and cannot lie? Because everything else will fail you. Everything else. And I can take you through every religion in the entire world and every philosophy and every worldview and show you how they will fail. Because they will. And whenever people attack Christianity, the only thing they have to attack us on is that we don't walk the faith and stupid disagreements between dates and numbers in the Bible because they didn't date like we did. But that's all they have because they can't find anywhere where God's contradicting Himself on His promises and not honoring Him, like we can on Allah and the Vedas and the Hindu gods and Buddha and all them. And so that's the reality. Is, yeah, Christianity has been attacked, but they usually attack us to get to God because they can't go after God because He's not attackable, except for the fact of prove that He exists. But that's not much of an attack. So this is our God. Where Jesus, our forerunner, I don't have to run cross country because he did it for me, <laughs> entered on our behalf since he became a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 